Hey, happy 4th, by the way. Happy 4th of July weekend and week. Uh, We had an experience, uh, we, Jessica and me, last weekend that kind of got us very tender and thoughtful regarding our country and regarding praying for our country. I loved Lana's prayer, and I think there was great just perspective and wisdom. And in the middle of our celebrating this week, and it's, it's a holiday, so it's supposed to be fun, but in the middle of celebrating, in the middle of seeing the artistry of the fireworks, let's be praying for our country. We need an awakening in hearts and minds and lives of people. But this past weekend, uh, Jessica and Madeline, our youngest daughter and I, we were in New York City. We were celebrating Jessica's 50th birthday and Madeline's 21st birthday. So we kind of lived it up for a few days. We saw a Broadway show, did all the little touristy things. But we had a really powerful moment at the 9-11 memorial. How many of you have seen the 9-11 memorial? I have a picture of Jessica and me standing by what they call the survivor tree. And this, this memorial was, was so moving on, on many levels, and it actually became a very prophetic kind of moment for me and Jess. The, the memorial is to the side of that tree, but that tree was one of the few trees that actually survived the plane crash and all of the aftermath and the rubble and the repairs. They had to transport the tree somewhere else, replant it, replant it back in its site. It's held together by cables. But we looked at this tree and we thought, that's us, because that's how we're feeling in areas. But, but we're still here and we're still alive. And so that's now the screensaver of my phone. Uh, but it was a really powerful, moving time. And so let's be praying for our country. And, and I hope you all have a really special celebration this week. But if you have your Bibles today, let's open them up to the book of Psalms, chapter 141, verse 5. We're in a series here at Hope right now uh, from the book of Revelation. This series is called Revelation, the End and the Beginning. So we'll move our way to Revelation in just a second. But I want to start this morning in Psalm 141, verse 5. Uh, This is a psalm of King David. So David wrote these words. And here's what it says. Psalm 141, verse 5. David said, let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head, and my head will not refuse it. Let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Do any of you love being rebuked? Do any of you just look forward to confrontation? Oh, I just love it when somebody calls me out and confronts me over something in my life. Um, no, no takers on that one? <laughs> I know some people are more confrontational than others. Uh, some people, I think, are built for confrontation. You know, almost any worthwhile pursuit in life requires a measure of confrontation. And I think some people are more naturally disposed to that. It's, it's, it's part of their gift. I mean, think of somebody like Winston Churchill. They called Winston Churchill the British bulldog. And part of it was criticism, actually. Some of his opponents thought he looked like a bulldog. So they were actually mocking him. But they were also speaking to his tenacious nature. Some people have to have that personality for the things that they're called to do. So some of the people that drive you nuts because they're so confrontational, they might need to learn how to manage that 
aspect of who they are, but sometimes that is who they are. That's how they've been fashioned. Um, confrontation always hurts, though, doesn't it? The Proverbs tell us that, that, the, that confrontation is like wounds from a friend. So even when it's good confrontation delivered to you by somebody that loves you, it still hurts, doesn't it? If, if confrontation is delivered kindly, it hurts our pride. But that still hurts. But, but if confrontation is delivered badly or by somebody with a critical spirit, it just hurts us. It can damage our confidence. It can damage uh, our trust. Um, but by the way, what, what are your favorite forms of unhealthy communication? Y'all remember that there's four main styles of communicating? Three of them are no good. One of them is positive. The first unhealthy way of communicating is passive communication. How many of you are passive? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't have to, no, no confessionals this morning. But passive communication is non-communication. Passive communicators just don't communicate or their communication is non-communication. It's silence. It's suppressing things, which is not good, by the way, because things that are suppressed don't stay suppressed. They always come out somewhere. But there are, there are passive communicators. And then number two, uh, there's passive-aggressive communicators. And that's always fun. <laughs> do, do you all love passive aggression? <laughs> Nobody loves passive aggression. It's kind of fun to be passive-aggressive, but it's not fun to receive passive aggression. So I'm, I'm going to give you a little checklist to let you know how you stack up with the passive aggression in your communication. So here are some signs of passive aggression. Number one, chronic lateness. Avoidance. This would include procrastination, uh, avoiding conversations, even maybe avoiding the person that you don't want to engage with. Um, weaponized kindness is a form of passive aggression. That's where you do very kind things for people and generous things, but there's, there, there's, a, there's a little guilt attached to it, or, or there's a little, little, little hook attached to it. Um, sarcasm, silence. By the way, the silent treatment is deadly. The silent treatment serves no redemptive purpose in a relationship. It should be banned from relationships. It's okay to catch your breath, it's okay to go for a walk. It's okay to collect your thoughts and figure out what you're going to say. But the silent treatment is not okay. And it's also a form of passive aggression. Weaponized incompetence. That's where you drop the ball intentionally because you're upset. Now, there are reasons why people become passive aggressive. Sometimes people weren't taught how to communicate well. Sometimes families weren't safe. So you weren't allowed to express how you really felt, so you had to be more passive to slip it out. But regardless of how we get there, passive aggression is, is, is not a healthy form of communicating. Uh, the third is aggressive communication. Aggressive communicators interrupt, they criticize, they blame, they try to dominate. They can actually use louder volume than they're talking, and they can become bullies. And then, of course, <clears throat> the healthy way of communicating, number four, is assertive. And with assertive communication, you say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you don't say it mean. <laughs> so you say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you don't say it mean. Every human relationship 
will have moments or times of confrontation. And whether the confrontation is through passive, uh, passive-aggressive, or aggressive, or assertive means it, 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 it hurts to be confronted, doesn't it? I mean, David said it's like blows to the head, even when it's delivered in love. But David understood something that's super important for under, uh, our understanding too. David understood that if we're humble enough to receive it, if we're big enough to handle it, if we're courageous enough to embrace it and respond to it, legitimate confrontation opens the door to treasure. David understood that, that this is a kindness. It's actually like oil poured on the head when somebody's being commissioned to serve God. There's treasure um, uh, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, when the book of Proverbs opens up, wisdom is being personified. And so wisdom is speaking. And Proverbs begins with wisdom talking, and wisdom says, listen, turn to my rebuke, and I will pour my thoughts out to you. Which means that the right response to correction in our lives has the potential to release a flood of wisdom into our lives. Um, are, are you able to be rebuked? And this is not a rebuking message today, by the way. But are you able to be rebuked? Are, are you big enough to handle those kinds of conversations? And, and furthermore, are you skillful enough in your communicating that when you are called upon to bring correction, and that shouldn't be your MO, by the way. We shouldn't be correcting people on the hour. If it's, a, if it's a recurring, constant thing, something's out of alignment. But, but there are times when we are called upon to bring correction or rebuke. So are you skillful enough to do that in a way that, that brings life to the relationship instead of damaging it or hurting it? This is an important topic. I want us to think for a few minutes today about how to correct and how to be corrected because it affects all of our lives, all of our relationships, and it's a pretty major part of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, and you can start migrating there in your Bibles, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus delivered a series of stinging rebukes to seven specific churches of his day. And I want us to, to talk about this because sometimes we're corrected fairly, Sometimes we're corrected unfairly. Sometimes we're corrected by people who love us and have our best interests in heart. And sometimes we're corrected by mean-spirited people. But regardless of the source, if we have ears to hear it, and if we have the courage and the humility to respond to it, entire new dimensions of life can open up to us. Um, let's look in Revelation 2 about the way that Jesus rebukes. Because it is so different than the way that most of us have been rebuked in our lives. Um, I know we, we all know that Jesus was God. And so as God, of course, you expect him to be brilliant. But, but Jesus, as a person, was so smart. Um, every amazing thing that you ever discover or find about human experiences or relationships, you can trace it right back to Jesus. The way Jesus handles these rebukes is, is breathtaking. You know, I, I had two conversations in the last couple of weeks with um, young men that I met for the first time. In both of the conversations, 
I brought it around to a point where I said, hey, do you have any faith in your background? You ever been to church? Was religion a part of your upbringing at all? Both of these young men, maybe just a couple years older than Jonathan, both of these young men said to me, I grew up in church, but when I was in church, I always felt like God was in a bad mood. I felt like he was always mad at me, and I was always just on the verge of being spanked or disciplined. And one of them has left church, and they, they told me the name of the stream of Christianity that they'd been a part of. One of them left church and has never been back. The other one left, but he said, I'm looking for a church. I want to find a place where I don't always feel that when I come to church. And um, when, when Jesus rebukes, it is not a slap of condemnation across the face. It's, it's oil on the head, and my head will not refuse it. It's actually possible, according to King David, that the way we respond to rebuke can increase the anointing or the awareness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Let's see how Jesus handles this. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is speaking, and he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the angel of the church in Ephesus may have been a guardian angel of sorts that worked with the churches in that community. So when he addresses the church in Ephesus, this would be like Jesus speaking to the collective church in Claremont or Laverne or New York City. So lots of churches, but this is the message to that group of churches. And so the angel could have been an angelic presence that helped relay God's messages to the churches. Um, or some interpreters even see it as maybe the bishop or the person responsible for the churches. But regardless of the nature of the angel, Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him, and he's talking about himself, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And what does that mean? <laughs> Revelation is filled with imagery that we have to unpack. Um, the, the verse right before this, in chapter 1, verse 20, explains the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. By the way, in your Bible reading, far more often than not, the Bible makes sense of itself. So when you come to a confusing passage or a text that doesn't quite make sense, just keep reading I actually wrote a blog post once called, Keep Reading, Keep Reading, It's About to Make Sense. Because if you continue with the passage, the text will often explain itself. So what does this mean? He's holding stars and lampstands. Well, the verse right before this says this, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so when Jesus says, I am the one who holds the stars and I'm walking among the lampstands, he was introducing them to an aspect of his nature. Every time Jesus starts the conversation with the different churches, he begins by revealing more of who he is. This is important. Remember, the opening words to the book of Revelation 
Say, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is about an unfolding of who this person of Jesus is so we see him in a fresh light. And that's essential. A.W. Tozer said that one of the most dangerous things for a human is to have a low or an unworthy view of God. Every single one of us today who have faith and we're trying to follow this message, we all need to see Jesus in a fresh light. That there are aspects of his nature that if you could see it, it would unlock something in your soul. It would heal something in your history. It would bring a greater sense of purpose. So when he said to this first century church, I'm holding the stars and I'm walking through the lampstands, he was saying, I've got you. I've got you in my hand and you're not walking alone. I am the one who walks alongside the church. Apparently, there were Christians in first century Ephesus that needed to be reminded that Jesus had them. And the fact that this made it into our canon of scripture lets me know that there are probably 21st century Christians today that need to know that Jesus has got you. And you are not walking alone. Um, man, if a young person grows up thinking that Jesus is always in a bad mood, he's always ticked off. If there's no fresh revelation of who Jesus really is, sometimes that young person will never come back. We need an ongoing, unfolding revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And then in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Isn't it amazing to be seen? How healing were those words? I've seen it. I know what you've been through. You know, most of our great battles in life, which I probably, the, the vast majority of the great human battles that we walk through are solitary. They're internal. None of us here know what it took for you to get here today. We know what you look like. We know what it's like to shake your hand. None of us know the battle or the price that you had to pay to get where you've gotten today. And sometimes it is so healing just to hear Jesus say, I know and I see, and it's not been lost on me. It's not been forgotten. I know your deeds. I know how hard you've worked. I know what you're holding on to. Um, God, I'm trying. Do you, do you ever just say, God, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Does anybody see? The, the answer is yes. And if you slow down enough, and if you get quiet enough to come into God's presence, you will probably get a fresh revelation of who he is. Um, did, did any of you ever read the book, If You Give a Moose a Muffin? Any of you elementary teachers or parents, who read that book before? If You Give a Moose a Muffin. It's so good. If you, if you haven't read it, you've got to go read it. You've got to be careful with moose or mooses. What's the plural of moose, by the way? Is it just mooses? But you've got to be careful. If you give a moose a muffin, he'll probably want some jam to go with it. Once you open the door, it just keeps happening. Listen, if you quiet your soul in the presence of God, you will probably get a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. And that revelation changes everything.
But then after that affirmation, he, he then moves to the critique. He moves to the rebuke. He says, I'm with you. I've got you. I see what you've done, and I'm so proud of you. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. In, in the middle of all that you've done and all of your work and all of your persevering, you, you've let the romance slip away. So listen, I need to talk to you about this. I'm so proud of you. I love you. I'm for you. But don't get so busy. Don't get so, so caught up in your persevering that, that you lose the wonder or you lose the first love. In fact, he says, uh, you have to repent in verse 5, he says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And what was the lampstand again? Church. The church. When Jesus comes to address this church, he's saying, listen, you're doing so much right. You're doing so many good things and it's wonderful. But how many of you have noticed in your own life that when life gets intense, when a price is being paid, romance is what goes out the window. You just survive. You just do what you need to do. And the wonder, the first love, is one of the easiest things to jettison when it's one of the most important things to hold on to. The wonder of being alive, the wonder of having a job, the wonder of, of a clean t-shirt and a cup of cold water and a relationship and a friend or a child. And, and he says, if, if you don't recapture this, the church is over. If, if a church loses its capacity to love or be known by love, if they don't repent and recapture it, then it is time to shut the doors, lock it up, close off the lights because it is over. A loveless ministry is a misrepresentation of Jesus before the world. A loveless ministry paints a picture of God that's confusing and, and needs to be corrected. Um, I, I don't know if you're like this, but I find myself, every time I talk to non-Christians about Christianity, I always end up apologizing for actions and attitudes from Christians that aren't actually acting Christian. In almost every conversation I have with somebody who's not a part of the Christian faith, I hear myself saying, no, hold on, time out. That, that's not a good representation of the passion and the life and the heart of who Jesus is. I, I think we need to make a commitment to live lives that do not require a caveat. You know what a caveat is, right? A caveat's a pause. It's a it's a little bit of a warning. It's a little bit of a disclaimer or an explanation. Oh my gosh, I don't want a life that needs to be explained and qualified. He's a Christian, but not the kind of Christian that Jesus would fully want to call his own. There, there were a lot of Old Testament kings like that. He served God, but not like his father David did. Or he served God, but the high places still remained. Not fully Oh my gosh, let, let, let's, let's live caveat-less lives. I, I don't want a life that has to be qualified and explained. Yes, yes, I know she's a Christian, but, and it's so easy for that to happen. It's so easy for us to slip into that. Um, he, he calls that out. But then in verse six, he builds them up again. 
So, so if you've ever been confronted by your boss and your boss builds you up and cuts you down and then builds you up again on the way out, they got that from Jesus. This is, this is Jesus' pattern of bringing correction. Revelation of who he is, affirmation, correction. And then in verse six, he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And the Nicolaitan practice was basically where you could take a little bit of God and a little bit of scripture, mix it with a little bit of the world's values and priorities and obsessions, and scoop it all together until you have a faith that isn't really the faith anymore. It's basically the idea of too much of the, the, the priorities of the world around you have leached into the church. So there's really no distinguishable difference. And, and, and that can happen. Um, are, are, are we the same as every other person we know, except that we have somewhere to be two out of four Sundays a month? That's not rebuke. That's national average of regular church attenders. So the committed people, it's two out of four times a month. Is there any distinguishable difference in my life, my character, my honor, my integrity, my love for others, my service? Or am I just like everyone, but I have some beliefs and I attend worship? And it's not a a big slam on the church, but, but, but we are called to be separate. We're called to radiate and model a new creation that looks different. So Most of what Jesus rebukes, if you read through chapter two and three with these seven churches, it all comes back to a Nicolaitan mentality. Too much of other values, other perspectives, other priorities, other gods, too much of that is getting mixed into your soul and you're not fully mine. The language here is romance and passion and love and commitment. And then he says something that is so important that it makes it into all seven of the addresses. So to each of the churches, he follows the same pattern with all of them, revelation, affirmation, rebuke, and promise. Um, But then he says these words to all of them. Um, The application's different, but these words are the same. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So make sure you're hearing the right message that I want you to hear. Do you ever hear without hearing? Do not ask Jessica if I ever hear without hearing. Have you ever been present, but you're not present? I'm in the conversation, but I'm somewhere else internally. Let's not do that with the Holy Spirit. Let's extract the right message from the Holy Spirit. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus moves us to the purpose of rebuke. So this next phrase, this is the purpose of why he brings correction into our lives. It doesn't feel good. We never like it. We never want it. But he says, to the one who is victorious. So in this context, it's to the one who recaptures their first love. It's the one who responds to the rebuke. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The goal of healthy correction is to make things live. I hate the pruning metaphor that gets used in scripture. Isn't that a weird thing that if you want a plant to grow, you actually have to cut it back? 
What a, what a strange natural lesson for us. Uh, my mother-in-law had a, a big tree on her back patio and she pruned it, but she pruned it too deep and it killed it. And so it actually underscored the lesson that we have to, to be careful with our pruning or we can damage something. But it's interesting that the right level of cutting actually produces new growth. If you ever are asking God, take me further, do more in my life, make me better, make me more like you, we're actually inviting a measure of God's correction in our lives. But the point of it is to make things grow. And we have to be able to go there with people. No, 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 no. You can't turn down that street. That's a one-way street. See, we bring correction because we want to preserve life. No, arrogance and greed and self-centeredness, that doesn't fit in the kingdom of God. Those traits don't fit in God's kingdom. Yes, there are things like right and wrong and justice and morality in the world, and those things matter. See, um, actions and paths have consequences and destinations, and sometimes it takes a measure of correction to, to guide someone to a path that leads to life. I want you to live. Um, God is trying to shape us into people who fit in his kingdom. It's kind of funny. Everybody in church thinks that they're going to love heaven. But heaven is made for people who are like Jesus. I don't know how I would do if I could never have a little ego in me. I don't know how well I would fit if everything had to be about someone else. Am I the kind of person that fits in a kingdom that's upside down from the world around us? You, you serve to be great. You push the, the down button if you want to go up. You give to receive. Uh, God is trying to shape us into people that fit into his kingdom. In fact, that's what um, Hebrews 12, 7 is all about. You can read this up on the screen. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons or daughters. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, like blows to the head. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Listen, if you're ever called on to bring a rebuke, how do we do that in a way that doesn't damage the person? We do it like Jesus. We do it with life in mind. We do it as encouragers that are quick to point out every possible thing that the person's doing well, but, but we also do it as lovers who love too much to, to not warn someone of an impending cliff or, or something harmful or damaging. Um, so how, do, how do we receive correction? <clears throat> Since none of us love it, how do we do it? I think we should do several things. Number one, I think we should pray for ears to hear, especially if the delivery is not done well. My experience in being confronted many times in my life is that most people are bad confronters. 
People do not confront well. Most of us are not taught how to confront. And since we're not taught how to confront well, we usually don't do it well. We're afraid of it, so we wait too long. And then it builds up, and then when it builds up, it overflows, and it comes on too strong, and it hurts the person. Or, or I've had people confront me, but they didn't do a good job with their examples. So all of their examples of where I had hurt them, I could easily justify, and I didn't have to take any ownership over them. And people aren't always skillful at bringing rebuke, so we have to pray to have ears to hear. Some people confront you out of a pure motive. Sometimes they confront you out of an impure motive. Sometimes people do it because they love you and want the best for you. Sometimes they're just mean or, or, or too critical. But whether that's true or not, um, Dr. E. Stanley Jones, who's my favorite all-time um, Christian author, he said, my critics are the unpaid guardians of my soul. Whether it's intended for good or for bad, if we have ears to hear the message, it could be oil on the head that increases God's presence. So that's number one. Let's pray to have ears to hear. Number two, what's number two? Feel and then release the pain. It always hurts to be confronted. It always stings. When you get that email or you think you're doing great and somebody totally misread you or misrepresented you, it hurts. So feel it and then let it go. I know it's easier said than done but you just got to let it wash over you. Feelings are feelings and feelings will change. So feel it, sit with it, let it do its work and let it go. Number three, say thank you and tell me more. Thank you and tell me more. See, that's humility. If you're in a conversation where there's some correction coming your way, if you can say thank you, that's humility. And if you can say tell me more, what that does, that introduces us to a three-dimensional level of awareness it lets me realize what my actions have done to the heart of God. If I've offended you, if I've, if I've hurt you, I've actually harmed and hurt your father. And by saying, tell me more, I really want to get this. I understand what my actions did to God's heart. It's really fascinating in Psalm 51 when David repents for, for his tr the traumatic thing he did with Bathsheba and that whole story. He actually says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is wrong. Now, that wasn't true. He sinned against multiple people, but he realized my sin is first and foremost an affront to the heart of God. And when I get that squared away, then I can repair with you. And when I say, tell me more, then I start to understand, what has this done for me? It's not good for me to live out of sync with God's perspective or Christ's character. So thank you and tell me more. That's number three. Number four, make amends. Number five, chart a new course. And then number six, walk that new course until new neural pathways form in your brain. I love the research that's coming out, and it's been out for a while, but there's tons of new articles coming out about how the human brain is elastic, and actions create pathways. If you do the same thing over and over, it creates a pathway that that, that it's kind of like a, a bike trail, all these mountain bikers that ride up past our, our property. You've got grass and shrubs and stuff, but then there's a path because so many people have walked it. That happens in our brains. Or it's like the grooves on, on the 10, and you, you get close to the groove, and it, it sucks you into its wake. But the, 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 the amazing thing about the human brain is all of that can be reset. If you drink too much, 
if you open doors in your thoughts or if you do things that you shouldn't be doing, all of that creates pathways. All of that can be reset. So <clears throat> shutting a door, starting a new path, and living that new path will create a new neural pathway. And now I used to be this way, but my nature now is this way. In Psalm 84, it talks about um, worshipers on their way to Zion. It says, blessed are those um, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. But one of the other translations says, blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Which means somehow this person has worshipped so often that worshiping is like a freeway in their soul. It's just natural and it takes them where they're supposed to go. The human brain is amazing. So, so you, you have a human body. The, the chemistry in your brain is Christian. You, you, you have a Christian body. Your, your body responds to God's principles. We turn from one thing, we move a new direction, new pathways form that help us to become that. That's part of the discipleship process. I, I think that's amazing. So if, if confrontation never happens, <clears throat> or it happens badly, what, what happens is small issues that should be easily resolved morph. And it, it kind of looks like this, and, and we know this. A lot of issues in a relationship are kind of like a speed bump. You know, you, but you're fine. You go over it, it slows you down, but you're fine. It's not a big deal. But if you don't resolve speed bump number one, Speed bump number two doesn't happen down the road. It sits on top of number one. And if you don't resolve speed bump number two, all of a sudden you have 10 speed bump level issues. They're not a big deal. But when they stack up, now they're a brick wall that the relationship slams into. And so therapy and repentance and healing and confession and humility and all of these things, it tears down those walls. I don't think we should leave today committing to being confronters. But we should leave today saying, I want life in here, in relationships, in our church, in our nation. And so I'm going to clear the space. I'm going to keep things clean, even if it requires a messy or an uncomfortable conversation. Jesus gives revelations, affirmations, rebukes, and then promises for overcoming. But I will say, it's so interesting to me. There is one church in these chapters where there's a deviation from the pattern. Um, I think it's chapter 3, verse 7 with the church of Philadelphia. It's really interesting because there's no rebuke for that church. And I think it's interesting because we know that the word Philadelphia is made up of two Greek words, brotherly love. So the church that is known by brotherly love gets no rebuke from Jesus. The church that is marked and known by love gets to know Jesus more. They get affirmation and they get challenged to, to hang in there and overcome. But there's no rebuke. I think the, the more we walk in love, the less there is to rebuke. Now, there will always be something to get rebuked in our lives. But let's make that our aim. I, I would like to be part of that church. How about you? I would like to be part of a church that is so increasingly walking in love that there is less and less that requires correction. And when there is correction, let's be in a church that's quick to repent. Um, in Isaiah 11, I'll end with this, there's a passage of prophetic descriptions of Jesus. It's talking about the spirit of God that would be on Jesus, the Messiah. And one of the descriptions is it says that he will be quick on the scent of the fear of the Lord. 
which means quick to respond. Now, of course, Jesus was God, but he was modeling for us humans that true humility is, is a, it's quick to repent. It's quick to turn. It's quick to say yes. It's quick to say, tell me more. It's quick to change our life. That person has a constant flow of grace moving through them. Um, there's, a, there's a verse uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if you, if you judge yourself, you will not be judged. If we're quick to respond to the Holy Spirit, if we sensitize our conscience and we say yes, there will be very, very few things that need to be corrected. And when they do, we will be so permeated in the oil of God, it'll be a smooth course correction. I think the world needs to see those kinds of Christians. We're living in an era where the church is increasingly needing to recapture first love, to recapture passion. I was talking to some pastors from China a couple of years ago, and I was asking them, well, what is it like to be a Christian in China? What is it like to do this with um, either resistance or even outright persecution? And they just said, what is it like being a Christian in L.A.? They said, it's probably harder for you than for us. They said, you are so distracted. You are so busy. You are so preoccupied. We are focused on this one thing. It'd be harder. They were telling me it would be harder to be sold out for this kingdom of God in L.A. than in an oppressed part of the world. Oh, I don't want that to be our story. Yes, let's love our hobbies. Yes, let's, let's be grateful for good things. Let's be wise and faithful. But let's live in a different kingdom. Let's orient our lives around the one who was and is and is to come.